Okay, we're going to start First Timothy today. Um, probably a good place to start. Probably the easiest question we're going to have is <clears throat> who wrote their letter? Who wrote the letter? Timothy's not the right answer. <laughs> Paul. <clears throat> Paul wrote the letter. And he wrote the letter to Timothy. And uh, in my research and trying to date it, it's interesting. Uh, Schofield says that the date of this epistle turns upon the question of two imprisonments of Paul. If there were two, see Acts 28. Then it is clear that the first that first Timothy was written during the interval between his first and second imprisonment. If Paul in, uh, endured but one Roman imprisonment, the epistle was written shortly before the last journey to Jerusalem. So, it's one of the what is known as the pastoral epistles. You know what that means. We just finished uh, Titus, which was a pastoral. Uh, epistle in first and second Timothy, what does it mean? They're really tough questions. Guidance on how to run a local body. You know, that's a good answer because that's really what it is. Here's how the church ought to function. Here's your role. Here's the role of other people. Uh, and uh, like we need guidance because if you, if you, if you outlined first Timothy, and then applied that outline to a lot of churches today. They wouldn't uh, pass to pass the muster because they don't run their churches that way, you know. So, what do you think the theme is? What's this the theme? That's why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'm going to refer to Schofield. He says, as the, as the number of churches increased, the questions of church order, of soundness in the faith and discipline became important. At first, the period made it necessary that a clear revelation should be made. Oh, and at first, I'm, I read two lines in one. At first... The period, no, I did that right. Such a revelation is in First Timothy and also in Titus. <laughs> and there'll be some sim similarities in Timothy, some repetition of what he talked to Titus about. Uh, the key phrase in the epistle, now this is really interesting. This is the key phrase, according to Schofield, that thou may know how... Thou ought to behave thyself in the house of God. That doesn't sound very gracious to me. It sounds like discipline. Yeah. Am I supposed to act a certain way or behave myself in the... When he talks about behavior, what do you think he's talking about? I mean, do you have... We've got to stick up on the door when you come in. The behavior in this building is as follows. 
39 precepts. <laughs> I think Macaulay said, why do we always got to go by the clock? So, there is an order. Um, there is an order in in the church uh, to keep things uh, in control. Because even though we're all believers, we walk in the door and carry the sin nature in with us, and we're whether we recognize it or not, we we're self centered, and all we do is put holy water. But we're still self centered. I think the general is <laughs> without any leadership you know it's like herding cats you know it's there even though we're all believers and all that if there's not an authority or something the tendency is to wander and whatever and and god provided that we have order elders deacons and all those to provide order and authority so, yeah a chain of command he does command. he definitely yeah. does that he designates certain authorities, you know, husband, wife, family, fathers, you know, mother, all those authorities he designates. And one of them is elders and, have, you know, in the local assembly. And he's giving guidance to those gentlemen and, and what are the qualifications, all the different things that relate to, you know, church order. Otherwise, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's chaos. And, and God is yeah, not that interesting. Chaos. I, I can remember when I first, uh, Got into business and we would have meetings and they would deteriorate into chaos. Some guy walked in the room with a plastic sheet. Robert's Rules of Order. <laughs> this is how you run a meeting. <laughs> Mine was a little different, you know, in that in high school, very disciplined in sports. Had great coaches, you know, and you know, great discipline, great everything. And then when I got to college, it was just club, club sports mm-hmm. without any coach. Oh yeah, I said no rules. The beauty of coach. Oh, I know. I hated a coach when he told me to. Oh, I know. Twenty laps or do whatever and all that, but it, it was completely different mm-hmm. without a coach versus and and so the I, I graphically saw the difference between leadership, you know, oh. something under leadership and something not under leadership. There's no there's no more brutal sport than a club uh, sport like basketball in college. <laughs> Try lacrosse when they're beating each other yeah. up. That's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Broke my collarbone on that yeah. one. So, yeah. And so, and God has had order in the human uh, existence since the beginning. Starting with Adam. So he's all about order. He's all about things ought to function in a certain way. Um, uh, Well, had it been with the churches if they had neither added to nor taken from the divine order. Now, let's talk about how would you divide the epistle up? The first section is chapter 1, verses 1 through 20, legality and unsound doctrine rebuked. The second section is chapter 2, verses 1 through 15, prayer and the divine order of the sexes enjoined. I don't have any transgenders in here, do I? Oh, good. 
<laughs> they go in the class over next door. <laughs> a three is the qualification for elders and deacons, and uh, which is chapter three, one through sixteen, and we've actually already gone through that in Titus, so we should be pretty familiar with it. Four, the walk of the good minister, chapter four, verses one through sixteen, and lastly, the work of the good minister, chapter five. Uh, 1 through 6 and verse 21. So, um, that's basically where we're headed. A couple other notes. Um, <clears throat> let's see, I think this is a we. Here is a book. He talks about, he talks about 1 Timothy. I think it's kind of cool. He said, here is a book which together with it, with its 11 predecessors, is unique in the field of biblical interpretation, a book which puts the Greek New Testament on a level where the student of the English Bible can successfully work and with great benefit, a book which will enable him to uncover a wealth of truth that lies embedded in the gold mine in the manuscripts which left the hand of the inspired writers. And so which he does, he had access except by means of the original language in the New Testament was written. It's from Weist. Now, Weist is a Greek geek. And some, some of what he has, to, like when he translates things, sometimes they're very good and sometimes it's like, what? <laughs> what did he say? Um, so in terms of, of introduction... Um, other than, which we've, we've gone through this before, how the, the, the epistle is structured. And um, I, I probably don't have to repeat this because I think every, every epistle we start, we start with understanding how the salutation goes, different than how we do it. We do it like if I was going to write a letter to Courtney, I would say, Dear Courtney, whole body of the letter. And then at the end, I would say, Sincerely, Mike. But they did, ancient times, they didn't do it that way. They put it all an introduction uh, and the recipient and the writer in the first line. So that immediately, you know, you know who it was coming from and who it's for which I kind of like better, actually, when you think about it. it's Because you could get halfway through a letter and think, who wrote this thing? <laughs> I got a, We got a letter from about the uh, caucus. And about halfway through it, and I thought, who wrote this garbage? <laughs> um, so, as an example, a, a Roman manuscript... Um, uh, Pliny to the emperor Tarjan wishes health, etc., to which the emperor replied, Tarjan to Pliny, health and happiness. So the comp what we know as a complimentary close is actually in the first line. Okay. Um, let's see. So that's all I have in the introduction. 
I went back just because I, I was thinking about the confusion and why you have structure. It, it was a verse I was trying to find it in, the, in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Mm-hmm. So that's why he has structure. He, he, he is not one of confusion or he, he's of order, not chaos. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when we were, were down in Georgia and Miles and I and, uh, got to spend a lot of time with Brian White and his family. We stayed at their house a couple nights. And I, in a talk with, with Brian, I, I mentioned, I said, you know, you're, you have four kids. One's a sophomore in college, one's a junior in high school, and 12 and 9, something like that. I said, they're all doing so well and they seem happy and they're smart and they're, you know, and, and they're polite. And I said, what's your secret? He said, if you create a safe environment, they'll prosper. And I got to thinking about that. A church is a safe environment. Where can you go? other than the body of believers that you fellowship with, where else can you go where it's safe? You're accepted. You don't have to you don't have to dress a certain way, talk a certain way. Now, a lot of churches you do. A lot of churches you do. Um, but I, th- I thought that was interesting because the whole idea of the body of Christ is that everybody in it would prosper would grow in the knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus. And you have to be comfortable and feel safe to do that. Yes. I'm sorry. I, I didn't hear you. I'm sorry. Our kids said that they didn't want to come today because they're scared of you. <laughs> <laughs> but you should think of certain more. <laughs> well, you know, the, 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 pri- the primary... Uh, function, the primary attitude of believers is that we love one another. And if we love one another, that creates an environment where you feel safe. You know? Um, yeah, it's that double-edged sword. It is. It is. You know, because there's got to be discipline. Speak the truth in love. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's hard learning that double-edged sword. I'll give you an example. My son John, when he first went to Texas, he had a job where he was told, his best friend's dad gave him a job in Texas, so he went there. And he had to learn uh, to be a mechanic. And at 90 days, he had his first review, and the guy that reviewed him just drilled him and really took him to the cleaners. And he called us up, and he was downhearted. And he said, what am I going to do? I said, well, the first thing you're going to do is go in there and thank the guy for telling you the truth. And tell him, okay, I didn't do it right the first 90 days. Now I want you to teach me, and I'll learn, and I'll pay attention. And uh, 
And he said, that's what he did. And it made all the difference in the world in terms of, of where he is today. And so uh, I find that interesting that he was the truth. The, the, the guy had the courage to tell him the truth. He didn't soft soap it. And John understood that he needed to, he needed that discipline. He needed somebody to tell him, you aren't cutting it, but I'm willing to learn. Oh, and that's a good place to be. Oh, it really is. Um, it's the word of God is powerful. And, and I, th- I think that, yeah. Cutting. I agree. Up and down. Austin Sparks. Yeah, I I think that uh, you know the Lord the Lord and His love for us doesn't sweep anything other under the carpet because it doesn't want to offend us. Now, Courtney doesn't believe that, but <laughs> but I He tells us the truth, and and He does it because He loves us. You know. Yeah, I was thinking about what. Uh, William R. Newell said, uh, until mercy is understood, grace can't be fully appreciated. Yeah, that's a great uh, line. It goes even deeper than that, and that is, we all seek mercy, but uh, grace is for the guilty. <laughs> See, and that's where total depravity comes in. Do yeah. you really believe that? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Do we? Do you think, as believers in a body, that you should be open to people to say you probably shouldn't have done it that way, or you offended me? Is that all right? Yeah, I think it is. Sure. Yeah, even though Courtney thinks I choose to be offended. <laughs> Well, and and I and I I may have. Oh, just wait till you open your mouth. Yeah. Well, what I find, what I find, uh, my offense. If I'm offended about something, it's usually my old man that's offended, right? And you choose. Yeah. You choose to be. Offended. And well, sure, I choose, and I choose to live in that offended old man. Right. I get to choose that. I don't understand. Uh, you know, you you have to be really skilled to go up to someone and say, "Look, there, I've got a problem with what you're doing," and say it in such a way that they understand that you, you the reason you're there is because you love them. You know, is that a hard thing? Out of thought. Yeah. That. So, are there offensive things that people do, positively and negatively, all the time? Okay, so. There are offenses. Yeah. However, whether it be a positive offense, meaning I'm maybe offending your character for the good of your growth, which is what had to be done in the church, right? Mm-hmm. These pastoral epistles are all about that correction. So there is an offense to our our character. And yeah, oftentimes you have to consider whether or not it's the sin nature or maybe it has to do with your walk. And it it is corrective, and it may come across offensively, and then there's that choice. But that being said, 
we do have that choice to be offended by the offense given to us. So the, the decision is, am I going to receive this and grow from that and trust that the Lord is offending a character attribute that is not in line or is the offense incorrect and I have to make a decision on how to handle that without being what we say as offended, right? Where we walk away mad and we're frustrated and we don't like that person anymore. What do we do with negative offenses in our life? I think I think the way that the number one issue is is anything or whatever I'm doing in my life offensive to God. That's a good point. You know, one of the, the last verse we're going to talk about today, that those that are in the flesh cannot please God. So if I am approaching him anywhere out of the flesh, I'm not pleasing him. Conversely, I'm offending him. You see, I can't. If I'm, you know, uh, what was he? If, if I get, if I had it, if I gave a million dollars to, I don't know, Dallas Seminary out of the flesh, would God be pleased with that? Not in the least because I did it out of the flesh. Okay. So when somebody comes to me and offends me, I think the first decision I have to, I have to think about is, to, one, are they right? Am I acting out of the flesh and I need to be corrected? Or two, are they being offensive towards my Lord? And if I, if they are, what can I say about that? You know? As an ambassador, we have, I think you brought up two really good points right there. So one of them is, Ultimately, is what I'm hearing also what God is thinking about me? Right. And is yeah. is a person doing it a believer and would 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 understand if I responded uh, from a biblical standpoint, or they're a non-believer and they they have no you know they don't they know about two natures they not they don't know anything about that. So. Um, well, it's, it goes back to that. What is, how does the Lord see me about this? There you go. Because people are offensive. Oh. And it's easy to get offended. Well, and if they find out you're a Christian, and Christians are targets. But I think you, you just hit on a really critical part, is that as offended as we are about things in the world and people that criticize our faith or our God or our life or our family or yourself. The question is, how do you stand before the Lord? That's right. And that's where, that's where the, the growth happens. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. Oh, yeah. It certainly hurts very deeply. We're going to talk about that the biggest later. The Christians have. Sure. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, mean guy. <laughs> 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 a nice, word. nice word. Yeah, okay. like bless you, brother. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and Lord, you know, sure, sure. Yeah. I, I, I've had this friend for about 40 years that played in the National Hockey League, Mike Crombie. He called me last week. Other than I haven't talked to him in 20 years. He says, do you recognize my voice? I said, well, I kind of do, but I can't put a name to it. He, so he's the guy that said to me when he was playing for the St. Louis Blues when he became a Christian and he was an enforcer. I said, well, how do you handle that being a Christian? He said, well, if I know we're going to fight, he said, I hug him. I take him down to the ice and I say to them, I'm praying for you, brother. <laughs> I said, oh, that makes him happy. <laughs> you know, one of the things I'm going to talk a lot about this morning is God's word and teaching us the difference between my old man and a new life in Christ and how long that takes and how severe that is. Because I got to thinking this week that we go through Romans 7, and then we jump right into Romans 8, like, well, that's the way my Christian life is supposed to be. Oh, wretched man that I am, and then I get to Romans 8, everything's cool, and I move on. No, no, it doesn't work that way. And I, I, what, we, got, we started listening to some of those Miles tapes this week out of, out of the, the green letters entitled Self. Oh, man. I'd forgotten all about that, forgotten totally about how God works and how long it takes so that you abide in the new life, which is not offensive to God. Yeah, I don't want to brush over what Don was talking about there. I think that's a really big subject. And we may be getting into the offensive side of the conversation too deeply, but um, I think it's really interesting that Choosing to be or not choosing to be offended completely has to do with what man you are trusting, yeah, and what where your dependence is. Because if you're in the flesh, you have no choice but to you have it about don't. anything and everything. So when we when we say that there is a choice, that choice is by faith, and it is in the it's on the resurrection side of the cross. It is, and and um. Oh, I'll save it for later. Uh, well, the last, the first thing I wanted to talk about in the, in your notes with with, with uh, the first lesson is what does the name Paul mean? Ask, huh? Ask or ask of? Ask? Yeah, ask. A A S K. When I I looked it up because I was kind of curious. I never. I never looked it up. Saul or Paul mean to ask or ask of God. Look, by inference, ask of God. Look what I found. The name Paul is a transcript of the Latin Paulus or Paulus, meaning little. What's that? Yeah. There was the same... Uh, fa- a favorite name among the Cilicians and the nearest nearest approach in sound of Hebrew Saul, 
According to some, both names are born by him in his childhood. Paulus was being Paulus being the one by which he is known among the Gentiles, which was a subsequent assumed to be the conclusion of the other, exclusion of the other, in order to indicate his position as a friend, a teacher of the Gentiles. The practice of adopting Gentile names may be traced through all the periods of Hebrew history. But I think that's true when you when you start reading the Septuagint in terms of the Old Testament. They adopted the Greek name that meant the same thing. So you had to know the meaning. So I don't know if 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 I if I think the word Saul is small, and you Courtney, what did you say? Yeah. That's where he started. Yeah. I would I would surprise, you know, in our neighborhood we have the Hasidic Jews and my my buddies have across the street when he was living there. I think he had three kids while he was living there, right? Or four in five years, something. And one time I said to him, I said, well, what's the name of the baby? He said, well, I don't know. I said, well, when do you find out? He said, when we take him up to the synagogue or whatever they do with circumcision, that's when I, I don't think the parents decide who the name is. The rabbi does. So, anyway. And there, and I said, "Well, how do you come up with the names?" He said, "Well, sometimes they're Old Testament patriarchs." He said, "But a lot of times they're uh, contemporary or the last two centuries of Jewish um, sc- scholars that they admire, so they would name them after that." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> or <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. So, anyway. Uh, let's see. There is a hint in this name that the apostle was of diminutive nature. That's what you were saying, Cheryl. Expression in Second Corinthians 10, 1, who in presence and base among you, the word base uh, among Greeks meant that that which was groveling, slavish, mean-spirited, Interesting. And another in the 10th verse, his bodily presence is weak. Speaks of Paul's physique as being in the estimation of the athletically minded Greeks, infirm, feeble, lacking manliness and dignity. But as in the case of other servants of God, there was a great heart in a frail body. Well, I, having read that, and then this morning I, I was reading about uh, Caleb, Joshua and Caleb. This is an article that uh, Courtney, you could probably stand to read. I'll get it for you. It's, out of, it's from uh, Word of Truth, their, their monthly magazine, or little. Do you get that? Oh, anyway, the whole the whole thing was about aging today. 
That's what got my attention. And they talked about Caleb uh, when the Jews got to Kadesh Barnea and should have gone into the promised land, he was 40 years old and a real, you know, rugged guy. And 40 years later, when they came back and he was 80 years old, he was just as strong at 80 as he was at 40. And the, the writer attributed that to his faith and that he always trusted God in every circumstance. And when God said, let's go, he said, let's go. He and, and Joshua were, were the two guys, and that that they did not. Um, <clears throat> and the point of the article is, is that if you walk with the Lord and trust Him, um, it isn't that you're going to live longer, but you're going to be with it right to the end. And I, th- I, you know, I really agree with that. The guys that I've known, like Miles Stanford, he was with it the day he died, because I talked to him that day. And then he died that night of a heart attack, but he was working on a project, you know. And uh, uh, Malloy was like that, although he wasn't that old of a guy. But uh, you find it that some of these um, people that we like to refer to and look up and, and learn from, they're pretty old. And they lived a long time, you know. And they didn't, you know suffer from dementia so to speak their minds were they might they might have forgot where they put their glasses but their mind was sharp (laughs) do i need to let you music people go yeah i do okay so we'll start next week with question two get into the the meat of what we're going to do let's close thank you Father, how we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the freedom to discuss it. We thank you for your spirit that teaches us and keeps us uh, uh, focused in on you and causing us to realize who we really are in your son, the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.